Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Weekly Word Podcast. I'm Chris Hout, AIM Coach, and this is episode 122 of the Weekly Word Podcast. And it's been a while since I've last podcasted, as well as done this formal intro as to what the Weekly Word Podcast is about. And it grows, it changes, it gets updated, and is constantly um, being adapted to what the focus is that I'm working on, as well as how I want to contribute with that. And the Weekly Word Podcast is where I discuss what we can do in order to achieve our ultra-endurance outcomes. Most of this discussion is applicable to most any endurance athlete, ultra-endurance athlete. I've found that the topics my athletes ask about, want me to discuss or explain in more depth, are what most ultra-endurance athletes are interested in as well those of you that are the listeners. I try to discuss and educate on how to reach an outstanding fitness level, maintaining a strong mind and the mental resilience that comes with it, as well as overall health. I also try to deliver advice, observations, and tips for you, the listener. But beyond these specifics, I believe with outstanding fitness and good health, We also reach a certain happiness and gratitude with ourselves and our daily lives, and we feel connected and alive. Our body is working at a healthy, vibrant capacity, and this makes us feel fulfilled. This in turn makes us better people, spouses, partners, parents, co-workers, friends, citizens, etc. We are more patient, observant, accepting, and tolerant when we are healthy, fit, and feel good about ourselves. Simply put, it is bringing forth the best current athletic version of ourselves. Healthy in body grows to healthy in mind and soul, and this radiates outward, making all of those around us feel your health, feel our health, joy, and happiness as well. And although this podcast is primarily geared towards the athletes I work with, I hope the discussion and insights from this podcast go way beyond that. That is my goal in coaching, to help others become fit, connected, and happy in their daily lives. Unlocking athlete potential to maximize their own performance with confidence that it will bleed into all aspects of their daily lives. Well, (laughs) I have some explaining to do. It's been a few weeks since a podcast And the intention was not to be this long without a podcast. But with Thanksgiving, we went to Maui, as I talked about in a previous podcast. And there we had every intention on not only recording a podcast, but diving into the nutritional podcast that Emily and I were going to record at our condo in Maui. Well, a little um, change to those plans was all our computers and gear and things were stolen while in Maui. So not only microphones, but laptops and iPads and (laughs) IDs, wallets, purses, sunglasses, all kinds of things. So therefore, our intentions of and my intentions of putting together a good pod from paradise did not happen. And um, yeah, so I am running quite far behind. Um, As you all can imagine, 
rebuilding and rebuying laptops and insurances and IDs and notes and notepads and books and journals. Um, not my personal journal, but my work journal. All that was gone. Um, podcast equipment, meaning microphone and a mixing pult, whatever they're called. Um, all those things disappeared, um, most likely thrown in a dumpster because people can't use them, sell them. But yeah, so that is my excuse for the three weeks between um, podcasts, I think it is now. And a lot has transpired since. So besides that and learning how to kite surf, and we still did have a wonderful time in Maui, but you know, especially once you're home, there's a little bit of a gray cloud on your memory of it because you're dealing with all the cleanup of it. I was definitely less impacted than Emily because I have a, my main computer is at home in my office and uh, Emily took her main computer. So it had all her information, all her passwords, all her backups, all her stuff on there. And sure, she remotely backed up, but you know, by the time you get that loaded and buy a new computer and all that. It, um, and her IDs got stolen, not mine. My wallet was with me in bed in the, on the night table. Yes, they broke in and stole our stuff while we were sleeping in that condo, just a bedroom away, same floor. <laughs> and the confession I need to make, it's pretty much my fault. I mean, not that we got robbed, but I sort of uh, wanted the sliding doors, the screen doors open not open. I just wanted screen doors so that I could hear the ocean while I was sleeping or falling asleep. Well, screen doors don't do much to stop thieves from entering. And um, yeah, that's on me. But I've already taken plenty of grief for that. And um, I'm still getting grief for it because it's been you know, almost a week now and uh, we're still working or Emily's still working on uh, getting new things. She's at the car dealership now getting new car keys done and um, a variety of things that she already needed to do with the car. But, you know, new car keys, new house keys, new, oh, so much stuff, so much stuff that um, was all in this backpack that they grabbed of hers. And um, mine was just my work bag that had a laptop and my um, podcast stuff and my work journal where I just write notes and, and ideas and thoughts and things like that in there. So, and an iPod shuffle and little things like that, charging cables, but pretty easy to get those on Amazon next day delivery back. And so we'll have to see how the insurance comes through and so forth. But yeah, behind with that. And then um, behind also, because this guy turned 50 years old, on December 2nd. So um, did some celebrating with the kids um, when we got back. And this coming weekend, celebrating with a variety of friends flying into town and a long weekend of just enjoying friendships and enjoying each other and enjoying the banter and enjoying the stupidity and enjoying some cold beers and yeah, going from there. So that's what's current in my world, heading out on a long 20 mile run on trails here in a few, but first wanted to update some things on the podcast. So some of the topics that you're hearing today are going to be um, two, three weeks ago when I was recording, planning to you know, update a podcast um, right when we arrived in Hawaii that first day or two. 
So in the meantime, Thanksgiving's happened. happened. I hope you all had a wonderful, wonderful Thanksgiving. I talk a little bit about the off-season in the previous topics, but I also wanted to follow up on that a little bit in the upcoming topic. But um, yeah, so I'm not sure or I'm pretty certain <laughs> the nutritional pod is not happening this week because out of fairness, Emily is busy catching up with clients, catching up with her corporate clients, catching up with getting IDs and social security card and real ID and new laptop and getting loaded up with all the things from her from the cloud or her backup service. Um, and, you know, it's it's a lot more than I realized. And um, yeah, I feel pretty guilty. But with that being said, um, we have the, the topics in there are like I said, two weeks old. They're also pretty choppy. Um, I'm struggling a little bit because the software I'm using and I'm recording currently on for the podcast has been discontinued as of October 1. And so the it's I can't really edit it properly and it's sort of fallen apart on me. And rather than working through and trying to figure out a new podcast software, which I've identified and I'm learning, I wanted to get it out on this platform that I'm familiar with quickly so that um, we can get a few more podcasts up and running into the new year. And then once we kick out of the new year, I will be up and running on the new podcast platform. Again, I'm new to this stuff. Um, so I'm trying to get um, as much content and questions and insights out there and then simultaneously also familiarize myself with all kinds of sound editing stuff that I am awful with. I mean, I'm terrible with it. I, I, you know, I thought I could learn something like this pretty quickly because this software worked pretty quickly, but no, not happening. So, um, and then uh, also this week, besides answering a few more emails and talking a, few, a little bit about the holidays and December, um, there is there are a few updates with regards to the coast ride and all the things I'm working on. Um, so, but that was the little asterisk on this week's podcast on explaining why it's been so long, what's been going on, why it's so choppy, why no nutrition update from Emily, and where I've been. So, I hope. Uh, you all can understand, and I look forward to diving into this week's podcast for you, for you, with you, and so forth. I heard an interesting quote the other day. Well, I didn't hear it. It came across my email in the form of a newsletter, but it goes something like this, and I'm just quoting out of a longer article, but life is going to be hard because we want it that way. Anything we get to easily, we take for granted. As soon as I read that, I thought of athletics and endurance athletics on the endeavors we take on. And it's nothing new to say life is going to be hard. That's a common principle that comes up for many of us and we read a lot about and it's quite applicable. Of course, we know life is going to be hard. But what I like there is the next sentence, because we want it that way. That ties into me the, um, the interest in a struggle and why many of us are so curious about our ultra-endurance events and adventures and doing something on the outer edge of comfort or familiarity, something that scares us, something that puts us at um, out of our ease and really challenges us and really requires us to pay attention. 
because we want it that way. Anything we get too easily, we take for granted. So just that entire principle alone, that those three sentences are exactly what I believe in the endurance athletic approach. We're curious for something more. We're curious for the struggle. We're curious because there's something more burning inside of us that we're curious about. We want to know what's on the other side of that door. That fitness, that ability, that confidence, that curiosity door. That nature, that going for hours, that feeling so alive, so fit, so connected to our body, our mind and body are one, never to be thought of as separate. They are one, same organism. They work in sync. The mind controls the body and the body controls the mind back and forth. We've talked about that in a lot of podcasts. But we're curious and we want to be challenged. And athletically, we need to be challenged. And it's part of our soul reaching out, reaching up through our bodies into our mind and asking us for a challenge, for a struggle. And since we often don't have it in today's comfortable society with our air conditioning and our comfortable cars and our couches and our big screen TVs and easy food access and peace and all the things that happen, I know I'm preaching, (laughs) but with all that, there's a part of us in our DNA, the way we're wired inside of us screaming out, challenge me, give me something scary. Give me something hard to work for because we want it that way. Anything we get too easily, we take for granted. Yes, we are taking our daily lives for granted. It is what it is. It's there. It happens. It's easy. We know the outcome. When we wake up in the morning, we can pretty much visualize our day and know who will be and what will be in the evening. Repeat that five days a week, a little bit of change on the weekends, but in general, nothing is overwhelmingly scary, curious, really tests all our abilities and senses and um, anything we can put forth as a human being. No, it's just not there. We're not in that environment anymore. And so endurance athletics does all that, puts us out there in nature, nature, puts us all the way out there in environments that we're not familiar with, that we no longer know how to master, that we're not um, comfortable in running big trails and getting stuck on a high mountaintop or out in a forest, disoriented, cold temperatures, all kinds of weird things happening. Yes, it's a struggle, but there's a part of us I'm convinced is curious of that. It's what I talk about when we go into an REI, see a great poster. And it brings us alive. It wakes us up. There's something inside of us that when we running poster or when we those Instagram updates come of running on mountaintops and all over the place in the world on through forests and beautiful scenery that just lights us up. We don't know why. We don't know what it eats us up. It makes us curious. And so that is what we don't want to take for granted. Life is going to be hard. Yes. But how are we making it hard? Now, of course, there's day-to-day situations and life and work and family and many situations that make life difficult. 
But the beauty is in endurance athletics is that we have an opportunity to choose our struggle, to choose our hardship. We are in control. We chose this adventure. We chose this struggle. And now we choose to see it through via a journey, via a process to reach the result, the desired outcome. And because we chose something on the far end of what we deem possible, something that's comfort zone, embrace it completely differently. Life is going to be hard because we want it that way. Yes, we do want it that way. That's why we're signing up for something. Anything we get too easily, we take for granted. So therefore, since we chose this struggle, this adventure, this scariness, we don't want to take for granted. We want to go through the journey. We want to experience the, the, the training, the adventure in order to get ready for it. In many cases, we don't even know what that entails. The training towards something scary, towards something dangerous. That's what keeps us motivated. That's what keeps us swinging our legs out of bed in the morning. And that's why we want that struggle. Life is going to be hard. We know that. That's a given. Because we want it that way. Understand that. Look at it from that perspective. Understand that there's a part of you that wants the struggle. And as you approach your training, as you approach your days, recognize that. Say to yourself, wow, subconsciously there's something deep inside me that wants this to be hard, that wants me to endure, that wants to fortify me better, to make me more of a human, to live. Living is hard. And we want and we are built and we are conceived and our DNA and our instincts are all built around knowing that it's going to be hard and our body is prepared for it and now our mind can also be prepared for it we can think of it that we want it to be hard anything we get too easily we take for granted one of the best things we can do at this time of year is to let go of our fitness and let go of our abilities with regards to the season and our paces and our wattages and overall conditioning. And what that means is it, a reset button. It won't completely go away, but especially for example, in running, think of it this way. If you let go, if you take two, three weeks off of running, let go of, of fitness and pace, and instead focus when you return on form and fit, on form and technique, the beauty of that is we no longer hold on to paces or fitness that we had because of a four-week gap, a three-week gap that really took our fitness and um, took the eraser to the, the, to the chalkboard. And it allow us, allows us to let go subconsciously and consciously to seeing a pace, to looking at a watch, to wondering what we're actually holding and it sets us up more for success on focusing on footwork and technique and posture and how light we are and things we want to work on. The same thing in swimming and biking. By taking a few weeks off and doing some different things, it often allows us to reset in order to then let go of old fitness, old wattages, old paces we held in the pool because we know we can justify, we can explain 
we can feel at peace with having let go of that fitness, we know we'll get it back. Deep down inside, we know we'll get it back quite quickly. But until then, until we get it back, it gives us that reset, that marker in that wedge time in between where we let go of 2019 fitness or last season's fitness and start anew by not stressing, thinking, observing, wondering about pace or wattages or speed and instead have a much open, more open mind to, all right, how am I landing? What are my feet doing? Am I heel striking with one foot versus the other? How's my bounce? How's my hip placement? How's my position on the bike? How's my sweep? How's my pull up? How's my ankle flexion? How's my swimming? How's my reach? How's my breathing on the other side or on the opposite side that I like to breathe on? How's my distance per stroke? There's so many things to work on and we, we all know that. But letting go of fitness and what we're capable of allows us to actually slow down and say, you know what, I got nowhere to be. I'm not trying to hold an interval in the pool. I'm not trying to hold a pace running. I'm not trying to do an interval cycling or hold a wattage or look for average wattage or average speed. I'm just going out here and riding. I'm just going out here and running. I'm just going out here and swimming. And even if you're in an organized master's workout or with a few friends, swim easier. Go down a lane. Pull back. You always can move back up again. But allowing this short window in time, these next two months maybe, to pull back and say, what do I need to work on form and fitness-wise? What does Chris need to work on form and fitness-wise? In the pool, I think about my reach and my kick. Um, the longer I can make my stroke in the water, I always swim faster. And to me, my kick has been what drives my entire swimming from day one. I learned that early on when I was eight or nine years old, that I had a pretty good kick in my swim and I've used it to my advantage and then had coaches actually validate and verify that to me, that that is a secret weapon, not in me, but just in most really good swimmers that they have this free outboard engine back there and if you can maintain it it will set you up for swimming success so i focus on my kick and that's a fitness build up that i gotta spend more time kicking doing kicking sets or engaging it at certain times during drills or certain sets during the swim and of course that fatigues me so i just gotta get into a rhythm of using it all the time dialing it up pulling it back when i need to and the same thing is reach. When I am reaching, I am kicking. Because if my hand goes far ahead of me on my glide in the reach, right, to the other end of the pool, reach to where I'm going, getting that untouched bubble-free water, that means the kick behind me is propelling that hand while it's gliding on the front of my stroke for that millisecond forward. I'm maintaining momentum forward like an ice skater that just pushed off of one leg. That lead leg is gliding further, faster, smoother, while the push leg is pushing the other leg forward, right? The same thing happens with swimming. As our one hand extends through the stroke, the other hand is already in the water moving forward to reach untouched water, bubble-free bubble water, and then have a big, engaged, deep, powerful pull through. Yes, deep, absolutely deep. Until any swimmer can learn to pull through deep, 
there's no reason to bend it at the elbow because that's a very high class, high speed, high level of swimming problem of bending the elbow early in the stroke so that you stay on top of the water. It's a, it's a new type of freestyle that they really started paying a lot of emphasis to about 15 years ago. That doesn't apply for most triathletes, most non-swimmers, most people who are new to swimming. Until you can grab enough water and not let the elbow drop and pulling like a praying mantis on the water, which is what 80% of triathletes do, you need to learn to pull deep and displace and move your body past as much water, displace as much water as you can as you're pulling through. You're grabbing as much water, torque, power to pull your body past your anchored hand as best you can. And so that's what I work on in swimming. What do I work on on cycling? Cycling, it's definitely the sweep. It's definitely not thinking about pushing down on my pedal stroke, but it's instead about pulling up and coming over the top of my pedal stroke. And what is my other leg doing at that time, right? Coming over the top means I'm sweeping with the counter leg. If I can get those two in sync, I close the circle on my pedal stroke much better. Um, I don't have a blind spot, a dead spot where the wattage is in a dead place, right? It's just being carried by the other leg pushing down. That's when you see people bouncing on their saddle or in their body position as they're riding a bike going up and down. That's because they're pushing down on the pedals. So their weight and their momentum follows that down push, but there's nothing holding the body up from the up pull. That means that when the counter leg is coming up, there's no power to it. There's, it's just coming up because the other pedal's going down, not because it's facilitating that or supporting the down leg. And you'll balance out your pedal stroke a lot more when you have that support of the downstroke being on the opposite leg, the upstroke, the pull up. So you combine those two. Now you balance out your stroke a lot more, your, your body position and how you're riding. You won't be bouncing. And another thing that you'll notice when you do that is your core is fully engaged. Your hip flexors and your core are fully part of the cycling motion and circle. So that's another fun part too, to work on that in the winter. That's what I definitely focus on that and small chain ring all winter. I will go through the coast ride. I will go into all the way until April before I actually kick into the big ring. It's all about small chain ring, all about being able to spin with good power. If I can do that, then when I click to the big gears, there will be plenty of technique and power to support that pedal stroke. That's what I think about on the bike. What do I think about running? <clears throat> At this time of year, because of the trail miles and the volume kicking up towards that, it's definitely landing light on my feet and leg turnover. If I can keep my legs going quite um, fast is relative, but light and moving quickly on trails, I'm going to have a lot more success. I'm going to be faster, less pounding, less wear and tear on the body, and overall just feel more nimble on the trails with roots and rocks and so forth. So always things that from a technique standpoint, that's why I love trails. There is no pace. I mean, sure, overall, you can look at, uh, did I hold 11-minute miles? Did I hold 12-minute miles? Did I hold 11, 30-minute miles? Don't know. But um, in the moment, there's very little care for pace because you're either going up or down or sideways. It means nothing. Pace means so little. 
same as same as it is on the cycle on the bike on the cycling um average speed means nothing means nothing that means on that course for you yes you held an average speed that was higher but you want to know that relative to heart rate and know that relative to rpe and know that if you go anywhere else that that average speed no longer means anything because you're not comparing apples to apples course to course conditions to conditions and so forth so instead you want to focus on if you don't have power you know heart rate and perceived exertion and overall time it took you took you to do a bigger distance now you might say well if the time over a bigger distance equals average speed yes but you know what i mean with regards to how it felt riding 80 miles versus how you had to slog your way or push your way through 80 miles 80 miles coming easily feeling light feeling in control going by quickly just sort of distracted riding and therefore not realizing how quickly time went by but yet you still kept it in zone two that you know you're making progress then so but the main point here is letting go of fitness letting go of paces and abilities that we've built up all season for a couple of weeks in order to then return and start with an open mind towards working towards technique and improved form, posture, fit, uh, uh, footwork, and so forth. Now, what do you do in those three, four weeks? Well, A, it's always good to try some different things, different sports. You can go hiking. You can still do some of the things, swimming, biking, and running, but do them without equipment, do them without gear as in um, power meters or heart rate monitors, just ride, just ride on feel, just run on feel, hit the trails at this time of year, hit the yak tracks, hit the snowshoes, hit all that stuff to do something different. And the big thing is I tell a lot of my athletes, let's do a couple weeks of just strength, nothing else, just strength work, three times a week, the rest of the time we're doing things that we don't usually do. And then you know, we kick out, sure, we'll lose a little bit of fitness. Absolutely. But that'll come back quickly. And that's part of the fun with this time of year, too. It's that we're doing things differently in the gym or in the weight room or in the strength room, right? We're preparing ourselves as endurance athletes for what's lying ahead next season. And that means we might need to take a break from the swimming, the biking, the running, or whatever sport it is we're doing the rowing, the, um, you know, there's so many sports that are out there that we get caught up repeating those same events that taking a break and working on strength is so healthy for us. And it also sets us up for the rest of the season in the weight room because we have a platform that we feel good about and can do the exercises that are more efficient, can do shorter sessions, but that have a more powerful effect. You know, you want to take an off season a significant break from your endurance activity. And a good strength program is intense enough to be that it's enough and it feels significant enough to be training alone as an alone standing workout week, day without additional training. Now, again, hiking or going for long walks, right? Different than hiking um, or doing some different things. Like one of my athletes who lives in Hawaii, she wants it. She does some stand up paddle boarding or, you know, things that you don't do the rest of the time of the year, right? Or going for um, along for some of you who don't usually run on trails, trail runs, or, I mean, there's so many things, but 
Yes, sports specifically, you will lose some of your fitness, your endurance abilities, right? But you'll regain that fitness quickly. And what this plan also allows for when you're in that strength only phase for three, four weeks and you have all this time off, it allows in between, right? So A, you're doing something unfamiliar to you, something uncomfortable to you in new exercises, in a new environment. You're not probably very strong in that strength room um, and it look, feels a little bit awkward. That's good for us too. But also it allows us to mentally recharge and rebuild physically just three or four maybe four um, strength workouts for a week and nothing else is so good. You know, then you have extra time on your hands and you appreciate the training that you do the rest of the year because you're like, man, I miss my training. You come back mentally recharged. And, you know, we often, not often, we all are on the on the cusp, on the edge, or already have overuse injuries, right? Because we just are doing a lot. And those are often, most cases, I would say 90% of the time, caused due to muscle imbalances. And so another positive of this off-season, letting go of fitness, focusing on something else, is doing the strength plan, or this, not this strength plan, but a strength plan, this strength plan I'm talking about with regards to off-season strength work, because it helps address, hopefully, those muscle imbalances that you may have and gives your body that break physically as well from the pounding of pavement, from the same thing on the shoulders with swimming and so forth. So you want to be rebuilt physically and mentally once you start the season. You want to be able to have a durable, strong body and that gives you, that carries you into 2020, into the next season, to be successful because of the strong chain and the durability you built. And it starts with this process. What does that mean? For most athletes, I have at least two weeks, but many of them up to four weeks of no activity other than strength. And it feels weird. It turns us into like as if we're only going to the gym, but it works well with this time of year in a lot of the country where you're not really training outside. It kicks us into the holidays now and allows us that extra time to take care of other things, right? And so it's all part of it. It's all part of our gradual build and unwind of the season. Oftentimes that's so overlooked in the coaching world and the training world in the athletes world when they're building their own programs. It's also unwinding a season, gradually unwinding after the A event and doing some different things to properly build into a new season so that everything is, is exciting. I missed the zone two work. I missed the training. I missed going to the pool in the dark in the morning when it's cold out. I missed getting on my bike in the rain when it's wet and it's cold. I missed running in the freezing cold temperatures where I couldn't feel my face or my fingers or my feet while I was running. That might happen if you spend a few weeks in the gym, or it might not. But I think you guys get my point. All right, let's dive into a couple of questions here before we have Emily on the podcast for the nutrition questions and nutrition conversation. First question here is, thank you so much for the podcast and all your valuable time and knowledge you put into it. 
I'm currently training for my first 10K on Thanksgiving. I would say that's about a week away. The Atlanta Marathon is about 15 weeks after the 10K, March 1. Would I be able to take my 10K fitness and continue on a 16-week or so training program for the marathon, or is that not realistic? Too much too soon? Or not enough rest between trainings? I would really like to run my first marathon, but should I shoot for the half marathon instead? Thanks for everything you do. All right, well, this is one of those questions that I answer typically um, with, I don't know what you've been doing or what kind of training you've done or what kind of background you have or what kind of running volume you have in your legs, what your week to week looks like, how much you did in prep for the 10K, was the 10K your biggest um, distance so far? Um, what kind of long runs have you been doing? Um, so this is a very hard question for me to ask answer because how much did the 10K take out of you determines um, how much recovery time. You know, if you're super fit and have been running for many years and this isn't the longest event you've done, but just sort of more a fun event you were training for, well, then you should be able to recover from a 10K, let's say, a 45-minute run pretty quickly in 48 hours and move on with marathon training of which you then would jump into bigger volume at slower pace and slower being slower than, let's say, marathon pace, which is a big um, range. But yeah, you'd want to build up that time since you already did some intensity and some speed in the 10K and then build up your distance as in build up your ability to run steady for three four hours without it being too taxing but yeah i don't it's impossible for me to answer this question without having more information about you so the question would be then can you yes is it possible to be to do it like that yes of course also depends on how well you want that marathon to go can you finish a marathon 15 weeks after a 10k i believe so but again we need to be so careful in what your history it is it is history is how you've built up your training prior all those things what your typical volume is if you're brand new to running and this is your first 10k well then that's a completely different thought process but it's still great you're doing six miles at the end of um november so i would focus on being able to do 12 to 14 to 15 miles by the end of December, which would be great because you got through the holidays with still running and building a healthy volume so that maybe by the end of January, you're able to tolerate a 20 mile run. Well, now you have all of February to fine tune your uh, 20 mile ability. Now, can we just jump to 26 in training? No, that would be rushing it and we'd risk injury and overuse. But do the best with the 20 miles by then, I think that gets you mighty close to, of course, comfortably finishing the marathon and feeling pretty solid, let's say through 16, 18, right? Because again, you've trained um, fitness-wise to 20 and then now durability and speed and capacity for, you know, 16 to 20 because first you built your endurance that you're good enough to be able to even run 20 miles well now let's make those 20 miles better stronger faster um, more powerful more connected more durable um, less taxing less overwhelming now if we do that correctly 
come taper and rest and recovery, you should be able to carry that to 22, 23-ish miles, hopefully. And then you survive the last three to the best of your ability. It gives you enough of the distance to have a successful, feel good about your marathon. But again, these are vague approaches. I would not go about them like this until I know more about your background and what you can tolerate and what you've been doing and how often you've been running. I mean, that's the the challenge I've been running into with Sunny that we've talked about, that without having any type of real running history, without any type of buildup, without any type of tolerances, jumping into the excitement of running is a lot. It's a, a very um, difficult process. Now, I always say, you you know, this process, the training is easy. What I mean by that, the training is easy on paper. Training looks great on paper. You can open any book and find a great training plan. How does that training plan apply, relate, work for you? Those three things, apply is schedule and life stresses and work and family and the other inputs that make that piece of paper a reality. And then the other aspect is your history, right? How much of running have you done before? How can you adapt it to you? How do you tolerate that? How are you absorbing that training? If you do three or four weeks of the training from the book and you feel yourself not absorbing, breaking down, fatigued in the wrong way, well, then that piece of paper, that book does us no good. Because now you're no longer adapting, absorbing, and um, taking the workouts and and really having an effect with them. And then you're going to go through another 10 weeks of just misery, um, crankiness, achiness, likelihood of injury, sickness, um, no joy, um, lack of fun in this process, lose motivation. So there's a lot of things. It gets more complex as we insert human in said training plan. So a lot of times, again, people confuse that I say the training is simple. It is simple on paper. It looks beautiful on paper. It's what I talked about earlier. It looks great. Life gets in the way though, right? Life gets in the way. So how do we take the paper and mold that, make that work, that training plan, actually the concepts and the model work for you a model is a guideline. The training plan is a guideline. Those are ideas and um, approaches and philosophies and um, physiology approaches that could work if you were, you know, in a vacuum without all the inputs that make you you. So this makes um this answers it very little this question, but it's just all part of the process of what I look to get into. I'm sorry I couldn't help you more, Derek, but yeah, define Atlanta Marathon. Define, is it finishing? So yes, can you? Is it too much too soon? Don't know. Depends on what you define as doing the marathon. So can you run it? Yes. Can you run it with a 10K in you? Yes. Can it be done? Yes. But I would be careful in in figuring out the guidance and progression towards that. Hope that helps. Another topic I come across queerly, queerly, fairly frequently is 
training concepts, and there's a lot of podcasts out there, and in general, a lot of coaching podcasts out there um, with regards to just general training processes, and especially for running or for cycling or even for triathlon. But what I really want um, to point out is that or how unique and different ultra endurance is. And the main reason there, the main concept to keep in mind there is understanding that we can't train harder than the race in ultra endurance. It's just not possible. We, If we were to do that, our recovery would be so long and so um, limiting further training adaptations that um, the training wouldn't be effective and our fitness wouldn't get much further than the engine we already have when we started the training process. So in ultra endurance, shifting that entire mindset over and understanding physically, we can't train harder than the race. Because in many sports, in track running and cross country running, up to marathon running even, um, cycling, swimming for sure, you can train harder than the race. You train harder in or you practice hard enough in training that makes the race, the event, the um, the outcome you're looking for to feel more controlled, easier, and you can make good decisions and execute a strategy better. For example, swimmers, if you train really hard and the effort level is really high and you're close to best effort in a lot of your swim sets, not all the time, but a set a day or two or three sets a week. I mean, it depends on how the coach does the periodization. What happens in the event? Yes, the event, you still go your best effort, but you can do it in more control, more observant, more connected with your body and it becomes more familiar with being that deep in the hole in the pain cave of suffering right and so similarly in track or in cross country you train hard enough that you become familiar with the pain and then the pain that you're feeling in the event is not unfamiliar and it almost becomes um, not comfortable. It never does become that, but it is something familiar and allows you to make the other decisions during your short event effectively, strategically observant to make, let's say, some moves with regards to um, placing and stuff. So, But in ultra-endurance, just not possible. But what I always like to say is in ultra-endurance, what we need to understand is mentally we can make it way harder than the event. And that's the key when it comes to training in ultra endurance. Mentally, it's hard to go zone two and go that slow and have everybody passing you up up a hill on a bike. Mentally, it's hard to go that easy for that um, frequently, that frequent of a workout that many times a week, right? It's hard to run zone two and oftentimes going to walking and understanding that this is supposedly helping me. That's mentally challenging. That's mentally way harder than racing. Mentally, it's challenging to swim long open water distances in prep for your event, for your 2.4 mile swim, for your 1.2 mile swim in triathlon, or for a longer open water swim that takes a few hours, five, six, seven, ten 10 hours. So 
That's what we want to use to our advantage. All the volume and the zone two and the frequency and the layering and the um, durability that we're doing is preparing you mentally. It's challenging mentally. It's way harder mentally on you than race day. And as many of you know that have a fair amount of experience with this, it makes race day actually go by pretty quick, pretty smoothly, pretty um, focused. It, a lot of people ask us when we're, what do you do while you're out there for a 100-mile run for 24 to 30 hours? It actually goes by pretty quickly. It's more in the training, what do you do for that eight-hour training run? Because you're immersed in your life and you've done other hours that week and so forth. It just... It's way harder to stay engaged in training mentally than it is in the race, in the event, right? And so that's one key aspect you want to keep in mind when we're training for ultra endurance. Um, we can't make physically the training harder than race day, but we should take every advantage of the mental aspect. When we don't want to train, mental aspect. When we're tired, mental aspect. When we don't want to get out of bed in the morning, mental aspect. When we don't want to go to bed early the night before, mental aspect. When we don't feel like eating a big, a solid, good fueling breakfast pr prior to a long morning, a long training day on a weekend, mental practice. When we don't want to speed up or slow down, mental practice. When we do have to ride another hour on the bike and we don't want to, mental practice. When we should be walking this hill on hour four of a run, trail run, mental practice. There's so, every single day, there's so many opportunities for mental practice. And again, it puts us into athlete's mindset, right? How often have we talked about that? The athlete's mindset is that we have the same ability mentally to prepare for an event as the best athletes in the world. There is no difference. And this aspect of it is something to keep in mind. We can be world-class athletes in our mental preparation for ultra-endurance events. And again, I like to say it's harder doing it when we have a job and a family. It's way harder to balance it all. You can't just shed your day and get into a three, four, five, six hour workout like professional athletes do when we were younger and had all the time in the world. It's way harder. The guilt aspect, the responsibility aspect, all those things, they weigh in on our training. And so here we are on a four hour run or a four hour bike ride and we have responsibilities and things to do at home or at work and things you want to do well and execute on. And yet we're sort of halfway here and halfway there. We don't, it's hard to do. If all you have, you're a professional ultra runner or you're a professional cyclist, if all you have is that for the day, it is your job and you just have to be back for a meal or a massage or therapy or strength session or whatever it is, or recovery or rest or stretching or yoga or whatever it is, that's a different burden on you, right? Now, plenty of professional athletes, runners, cyclists, swimmers, triathletes, they have families. So I'm not gonna try to um, create that boundary or that ingredient, but when it's your job, it's a different aspect. And in general, when we're younger, we might not even have a family nor a job and we can just commit full-time. So yes, what you're doing with a grown family and a um, advanced career whilst 
doing ultra endurance events, that is the challenge. That is the beauty. And again, that's the mental training that allows us to do this from that standpoint. We can always train harder mentally than the race actually is. It's exhaling there and going, wow, I get to put forth all my training into this one day. I will stay totally engaged. And I've, rarely do I actually, I can't think of an example right now where I've heard somebody say, yeah, I just would have drifted off mentally during my event. No, everybody stays pretty focused. Now, do they overlook things? Of course. Do they forget things? Of course. But it's not because they're like daydreaming or they're bored. No, they're fully engaged in their event. So keep that in mind when it comes to training concepts as well. And to follow up with regards to the training harder than the event is physically, remember, let's go back to the physiological concepts here, right? By training, we mean stress that results in a physiological adaptation. For example, like increasing functional threshold power, FTP, or how much power you can make for an hour on the bike, for example, increasing blood plasma levels, increasing mitochondrial density in the muscles, improving the ability and to use and replenish glycogen, the ability to burn more fat as fuel, heat tolerances, oxygen uptake. Those are the adaptations that we're looking for with training. Those are the physiological adaptations. And those enable us as aerobic athletes to ride longer and faster, to run longer and faster and swim longer and faster, or a combination of all three. There's a concept in training known as the principle of specificity. Here we go. This is the part with regards to training harder in the event, uh, training harder in training than so that the event is easier. That principle says that if you want to excel at riding 200 meter sprints, ride lots of 200 meter sprints. There you go. If you want to do well at a 40K, 40K time trial, ride lots of those. The point I'm making is that physically that principle falls apart at around five to six hours worth of work. That means if you want to be a fast racer at an event, let's say that's 24 hours long or 12 hours long, whatever it is, you should not do a 24 hour race per week or a 12 hour race per week or a 10 hour run per week or even one per month. The recovery time those events necessitate make them not worth doing regularly. We can't recover. And therefore, the time we're spending training after is not an adaptation. If you're doing something that will, sac that will require you to sacrifice sleep, recovery, subject your body to a lot of thermal variation, heat stress, training in a hot environment, for example, and dehydration, long training days. In addition to the calorie deficit that is normal for a, a training day or an event that's 10 to 12 to 24 hours long, no matter how well you fuel, then the toll on your body is so high as to not be worth what you might gain from it. Sure, it's great to have training days that are long to test things, to feel things, to observe things, to reapply that knowledge. But there is that 
threshold, right? Once you go over a certain amount of time, we just can't do it. It's just not feasible, nor is it a good use of your limited training time. You all are masters athletes. We all have full-time jobs and families, right? And so therefore, there's no way you want to waste your limited training time. Beyond the toll on your body that we just talked about, there's another issue. After these types of training events, or just even if you do them as an event, let's say a 50 miler as a training day, you might not even want to look at training for some time. You're just emotionally exhausted. And that's not good in terms of training and growing your fitness. The longer and less well-supported the event is, let's say your training day, a long training day that's too long, the greater the risk of more recovery time and that mental, emotional cost of having pushed yourself that far into it. So many factors play into we can't train harder to make the event easier. Now, you all know that we train it differently with regards to volume and frequency and buildups and recovery weeks and then bigger buildups and simulations, of course. And some of you might go, well, Chris, I've heard all 120 podcasts of yours and you definitely talk about long training days and simulations, especially for my Ultraman athletes where I have them do up to 80% of the event. Yes, that is correct. But we build up a tolerance to that, number one, Two, we don't do that every month. Um, B, the effort level is so low and it's more about time versus effort, right? We can't train harder than the event. And lastly, it's in their own environment. I don't have them go somewhere. So they're supported. They sleep in their bed. They have their own nutrition. They're covered. And 80% of a 150 mile bike ride is a 120-mile bike ride. Yes, that will cost you, but it will not shell you. And if your fitness is there, it's a long day in the saddle, but we're doing it easy. We're just getting in the miles. 80% of a 52-mile run, right, is a 40-mile run, a 42-mile run. We'll run 40-ish, right? That is technically too much, yeah, but that's the furthest we go. And again, if it's an ultra endurance, if it's an ultraman athlete that hasn't done one before, they need to feel that. And so, yeah, we will recover five, six, seven weeks from that. Not necessarily that with no training, but without asking the body to put forth that type of effort again for six, seven weeks. And then finally, 80% of that swim and run on the first day, right? So let's say you're swimming 8,000 meters you know, 10,000, uh, 9,000 yards possible to recover from. Yes. Um, 90 mile bike ride possible to recover from a 70, 70 mile bike. Yes. So, and we come into it pretty recovered and we cut, kick out very carefully. Again, it's, it's the culmination of it all along with properly taking care of the body until then. But what I'm talking about bigger picture is that training can't be harder then the event, when it comes to an effort level, when it comes to wattages, paces, speed, then in ultra endurance events, because you just can't, right? You know that your 100 mile running pace is going to be faster than your 100 mile 
training pace for when you're out for a 40, 50 mile run or <laughs> excuse me, not 40, 50 mile, for a 30 mile run. So it's not, not only is your training run slower than training day, but, and, and it's a lot shorter, right? But it's the layering. What did you do the days leading up to it and so forth? So it's definitely not faster anyways. And that's the overarching point here of this, of the, of the, this, what I'm discussing. I have an email here from one of my athletes and he gives me a weekly check-in, which I really appreciate. And he adds some color to it, which I also enjoy, but he closes it. And he, we, he talks a little bit about the challenges of Thanksgiving week and, um, how we got the training in or didn't. And, but he closes it with an interesting sentence that I wanted to bring up and tie into a reminder what I bring up every year through the holidays. And his sentence goes, as fun as the holidays are, it just feels like things get busier. Just think, just when you think it's already busy. I look forward to the training to keep me sane. Here we are, it's the holidays, right? We're Thanksgiving to December, uh, Thanksgiving was late this year. <laughs> Later, literally the last weekend of Thanksgiving, uh, last weekend of November. And then we accelerate, like everything accelerates so fast into Christmas and the holidays. So December becomes condensed and short. And there's so many things we think we don't think we need to do. And we think it's just our normal lives with regards to, oh, going back to work, it's a Monday and this week. But so many other things push into December that it is challenging. It is difficult. And that's what I bring up every year. Our one primary goal for the holidays is always to kick out the other side. Let's say January 5th or 6th, whenever the kids go back to school, having held on or captured or yeah, to as much fitness as we can. It will not be ideal. Too many things get in the way. Too many obligations get in the way. Too many things you care about with regards to family and traditions and travel and things get in the way. All positive, all good things, I hope, for all of you. But it's unrealistic to think we're going to hit 90% or 100% of our training through December. It's unrealistic to think it's all going to be green. Now, I like it to be all green because green being training peaks that you, you you completed the full workout. I like it to be all green because then hopefully we're communicating well enough that I can adjust the workouts for you based off your busy lives so that we can get through the holidays as efficiently and effectively with regards to fitness as we can. But there should not be additional pressure put on yourself for this time of year. It is a difficult time of year. So then we, therefore we take in a, a view from above, look at yourself from above, from 20 feet above, from a hundred feet above and say, what is my primary goal? What is that guy's or girl's goal? Me down there that I'm looking at from above. What is our goal? How are we walking around with our head chopped off? Like, crazy chickens um, when our stress levels because of training should be a little bit lower. And that is how do I kick out of the holidays with as much fitness or as, but, or connected to as much fitness or hanging on to as much fitness as I possibly can. 
And if today that means I can't get it done, or I have to amend it shorter, or I have to do something different, or I have to move this to another day because it might work out better, so be it. It's all about staying connected. We will get our fitness back in mid-January. We will. We can always accelerate then. We don't want to be out of shape. We don't want to lose it. We don't want to be disconnected. But what is the big picture goal? That is to kick out the backside of these holidays with as little (laughs) um, disruption or loss of fitness as possible. So if you just take that sentence and say, well, what defined that? Well, it's doing the best we can, doing a little bit of something every day, seeing the concept of the training plan and saying, okay, how do I best adapt that, absorb that, apply that to my life? And then kicking out going, all right, well, I got 70% of it done. I got 50% of it done. It was my best. I can't be more than my best. I was present. I was aware. I was thoughtful in my training and I still couldn't get it done because other things were more important. The three-legged stool kept me, um, I wanted to keep it balanced. It kept me from overdoing it on the training side. Totally fine. But see it, be thoughtful about it, adjust for it, and then think about, am I on a path It might not be a narrow path. It might be a pretty wide path. It might be a six-lane highway path towards kicking out on the other side to the best fitness ability I can. Not the most, not the best I've ever been, but the best I can be right now. Kicking out of the holidays, reduce the stress from training, focus it on other things. That's why earlier in this podcast, I talked about just the gym, taking some time off, pulling back, still doing some sort of activity that is progressing us towards our goal, gym work, right? In an hour or yeah, about an hour, a little bit over an hour, you can get very focused work done three, four times a week, let's say, and still have a lot of time to yourself versus the three, four hour rides or the 90 minute runs or the swim workouts where you have to go to a pool and that also uses time. Balance it all. Look at how you can play with the puzzle of your training and the hours you have available and work with it. Kick out the other side to the best of your ability. That's what we're looking for. As fun as the holidays are, it feels like things just get busier. Agreed. They are busier. And so take the load off yourself. Focus on giving that energy and that support and that love to others and to those that you can help. And we, we, all of us, our community, we will get fit enough quickly enough. Anybody joining on the coast ride will kick out on the other side when we're sitting in Santa Monica at the end of the coast ride going, I was worried about my fitness. Man, this, these four days of cycling eight hours a day Sure took care of that. I don't even remember the holidays anymore. I am so exhausted. Exactly. It's all relative on how we will get that fitness back and prepare you for the best possible outcomes in 2020. All right, let's dive into a few rapid fire questions here. It's a pretty good week to get a bunch of these email questions and text questions and Instagram and Twitter questions completed. So let's dive right in. Um, First one, 
Hi, Chris. I have a question. Though I've had success in the last year or so with running, no major injuries, a big race completed that I was proud of. At some point, I would like to drop down from the longer distances, 50K and above, and try my hand at the marathon again. My only concern is that I will get injured during the race. During the race? Huh. I hurt my IT band during the middle portion of my of each of my last couple of marathons and ended up limping toward the finish. How would I go about ensuring that next time I race a marathon that I can actually race? Thanks for all your help. All right, so the question here is, injuring during the race, I hurt my IT band during the middle portion of each of my last couple of marathons. Oh, well, that's interesting that you would hurt it in the middle because of a fitness question. Um, I doubt that. So it must be a form-related question or something in the effort early on. So let's say we break down that marathon into thirds. And if it, by the middle third, the IT band is inflamed, bothered, aggravated, something's going on, um, it must be something in the first third that is causing that. If you didn't feel it during training or if it wasn't an issue that came up there, I'm surprised that all of a sudden it would pop up there. So... Ergo, <laughs> I've been using that word a lot lately. Um, I would wonder what it is in that first part of the marathon in the taper, maybe, maybe the taper's too long. And then the suddenness of the event um, might be in there. I don't know. It's hard to say, but that's what I would look at. And that's what I would probe you with, with questions. If we're, let's say on the phone together, discussing this, it must be something in the beginning. Um, I doubt it's on form or footwork or posture because, again, you would notice it in training. Do you notice it in training? That's a that's the, the question as well. How long is your taper? How long are your training runs and lead-ups? Do you notice it in long training runs? What's your longest training run? Um, those are the things I would wonder about. Um, so it's hard to say, how would I go about ensuring that the next time I race a marathon that I can actually race it? Well, Again, there's simulations to go about. There's ways to see this in training. There's maybe builds. Like I like one of my favorite marathon workouts is um, the 4x4 um, in my training buildup. So let's say I'll start with 4x2, then 4x3, and then 4x4. This is, again, advanced stuff. Not that you have to be an advanced runner to do it, but you want to have a fair amount of volume and pacing ability and maturity with that um, in your legs. But, you know, I'll start early you know, 16, 20 weeks out with some four by two pace speed increases in, a, in one of my long runs. So that's four times two miles um, where each two mile section gets a little bit faster. So I have to start pretty conservatively um, that first two miles in order to still have three more sections of two miles in order to get faster. N nothing major, maybe 10 to 12 seconds per mile. So let's say I'm running 7.30s to start the first two miles, then the next two miles I'll run 7.20s, then the next two miles I'll run 7.10s, and the final two miles I'll run 7.0s. <laughs> so um, that helps the load on the body and the tightness maybe um, to settle into the Lego turnover, the speed and the pounding a bit better. I don't know. Then four by three, similar approach and four by four. You're doing 16 miles whereby you're increasing speed throughout the 16 miles. That's a pretty good gauge of knowing you're ready for 26 rested and tapered, right? Um, 
So might also require to see what the first ten, eight miles or six miles of your marathon in the past have been regarding to race pace and how you train that with regards to in um, and taking out uh, specific speed work and track workouts in your training for the marathon. Hard to say here, very hard to say, but those are my thoughts. Well, look at this. I have uh, two similar questions with regards to coming down from ultra running to do better at marathoning again. And that's a frequent question I get and a conversation I have with a lot of uh, not only my athletes, but just in general in the sports world of an ultra endurance, which is primarily running. Um, athletes become familiar, comfortable, confident in their 50K, 50 mile running. And they want to use that huge base of fitness, that huge platform of fitness, and then run faster at a shorter distance. If I can run 50 miles steady, aerobically, even with some hiking, obviously, in there because it's 50 miles, um, I should be able to run half that distance a fair amount faster, 26.2, without that many hills and with good footing and leg turnover and so forth. So it's a common, common um, thought and uh, sort of uh, process that athletes go through as they're planning what they're going to do with the fitness they found at a 50K or a 50 miler. Hi, Chris. After transitioning to 50 mile races over the past three years, I've been hoping to try to Boston qualify at the Wisconsin Marathon on May 2nd. Some background, I ran Kosh Country and track in high school and college, D3, and had a decent base of speed, although I was always preferred long runs to speed workouts. Don't we all? <laughs> I say that because speed workouts are so hard and just going long, I can go long all day. But digging that deep and burning lungs and leg turnover and form falling apart and having to feel like a robot still maintaining posture and form and leg turnover and foot landing while being so tired and breathing so heavy. It's a lot. Anyway, my senior year of college, I ran the Boston Marathon through a connection my coach with the BAA. I BQ'd in that race, even though it was a struggle. I resume, resumed running too quickly after the race and had to take almost a full year to recover due to lingering fatigue. Whoa, that, um, that brings up other questions on how well you were prepared for that first Boston and how that taxed you. I qualified twice more for Boston over the next few years and developed a sacral stress fracture. Oof. A few months before I was scheduled to run Boston in 2015, but recovered enough to make it through the race pretty hardcore. Um, after that, you, after that, and another sacral stress factor, I took some time off from serious running. Yes, I hope so. Um, during my break from training, I started to listen to you via Rich Roll. I was intrigued by the Z2 philosophy and decided to resume training and work toward my first 50 miler. I did mostly the Z2 training that year with minimal speed work as I was nervous about re-injury. I have now run the same 50-mile race three times, the Plains River Trail Race, and I've dropped my time by more than 90 minutes. <laughs> nice. This past year, I did integrate more speed into my training, but much less than I would have for a marathon. All right. 
which is also fun, right? So before I go further, and I, again, you guys often can tell, I don't read the emails prior. Um, I just sort of skim them to see if they're applicable for the podcast. I censor them. <laughs> um, you know, that's the beauty about zone two work. And don't think it's all easy. Um, zone two work gets more and more challenging as we get more experienced at it and as we, our speed and efficiency and economy of motion gets better at that same low heart rate. Um, and then there comes a point where we're sort of the sponge is full of zone two work and we do need to stimulate it with Z3, Z4 and threshold and VO2 max work. Um, there's a lot of benefit to VO2 max for ultra runners, for ultra endurance athletes, cycling and swimming as well, because it raises the ceiling. VO2 max raises the ceiling of our fitness, of our oxygen uptake, of our efficiency through the kinetic chain and physiological energy systems chain and all that stuff. So by raising the ceiling, it brings up the floor a little bit and therefore makes that last little piece of zone two aerobic work come up a little bit. Now, there's a there's a limit to the amount you can do, right, on the top end on how much it brings up the floor. But that being said, there is that cream of the crop all the way up there, top of the threshold effort level that does bring up the floor. And so sometimes that is a great way to close out a season's worth of zone two work, aerobic platform building work to add that little sugar and spice on the top to give us that extra speed. Just a side thought. I have had no major injuries since early 2016. I like it, though I did develop some minor tendonitis in my right angle during my most recent 50. Okay, I'm currently running a few times a week, four to six easy miles, four to six easy miles at a time, and I'm doing PT for my ankle. Um, we need to strengthen that. Do you do strength work, Anya? That's the question right here. Strength work, strength work. I know I need more speed in order to qualify. 330 is my standard. How can I safely increase speed work while minimizing the risk of injury and maximizing my chance of qualifying? I live in Chicago, so most of my faster workouts will probably be indoors on a treadmill. Thank you for sharing your expertise. So even that last piece, no, you, not all your work needs to be indoors on a treadmill. Even if you live in Chicago, if it's in May, you know you can do that last six weeks maybe of some speed work. Now, this is very, there's so many different ways to skin this cat. Um, and so I'm not going to pretend that my approach and my opinions and how I would go about it is the only way to work for Anya in this case. But I believe we start with a big platform of aerobic capacity, right? The bottom of the pyramid. So over the next few months in the, the dark months, so we do strength work and we do we build up a fair amount of easy running miles. Not four to six, but getting ready for a 26 mile run, we want to be able to run 18-ish fairly easy, 20-ish fairly easy. You know, very gradually building to that point. Easy, nothing too hard. And remember, if you're looking at 330, so that's eight minute mile pace, 3.30, right? So easy running is probably anywhere from 8.30 to 9.15 pace. Should be pretty comfortable. 
um, not very taxing and feeling good about that along with the strength component. And then gradually, um, as we kick into, let's say, February and March, we, we keep that platform pretty connected with regards to that pace of 8.30 to 9.15. We don't need to do as much of it. We start sprinkling in speed leg turnover, short sections, six times 90 seconds, six times two minutes, um, maybe a short ladder, one, two, three minutes fast, three, two, one minutes fast with 100% recovery time. 100% recovery time means the same amount of time that you did the speed work is your recovery time. One minute fast, one minute easy, two minutes fast, two minutes easy, three minutes fast, three minutes easy, and then back down. Um, so sprinkling that into a longer run uh into a medium length run so now we've with that you know we have maybe five six minutes of fast running fast not hard not vo2 max not any type of pace not any type of you know measurable thing just fast we're just changing gears as i've said before it is so important for us to change gears in swimming, biking, and running, and rowing, and all the different sports, hiking, rocking, um, even different types of strength components, hiking, especially with regards to high mountain climbing and stuff. Um, your ability to have different gears is so important. So in this case, we're going to fast. Fast is a gear. Medium is a gear, and easy is a gear or slow. We don't call it slow. Just sort of a negative way to describe easy. I don't like to call it slow. I like to call it easy or aerobic or comfortable. But those three gears should be pretty clear. <clears throat> now, the fun part about this is if you're not measuring it, your fast becomes faster without looking at it as you get more tolerance and ability and efficiency and economy and smoothness to that motion. Your medium becomes faster as you get better at that but it still feels the same. If your fast goes from seven minute miles to 630 minute miles, but it feels the same, there's success right there. If your medium goes from, you know, 738, uh, from eights to 730s, <clears throat> excuse me, um, and gets, you know, again, same, the point is made. Um, so I would sprinkle more and more of that in as of February, let's say pulling back slightly on the strength and using instead of strength because strength is a is a taxing higher intensity type of work on the body in a variety of physiological ways so pulling back on that and adding in now the speed component that's enjoyable too um, and and effective then finally march and april is where you want to include the race pace and faster than race pace and slower than race pace by a certain margin into the component that gives you eight weeks to work on that race pacing and days where you're still sprinkling in speed higher than a good ways faster than race pace and easy a good ways easier than race pace right so combining those components you can manage it quite well and do quite well but your line of demarcation i think should work work around that eight minute mile number if that's a realistic goal and a number that you know that you can determine that in different ways through testing field testing to see what your number is 
But yeah, so you want to figure that if eight minute miles is your goal, um, you can do percentages of that. There's a variety of formulas that I can help you with um, around that. But yeah, I would think that increase the volume at the easy, comfortable pace, um, start sprinkling in the fast pace, and then gradually increase more and more of the medium tempo, zone three, race pace, long days, um, or increased mileage at that. So that should help. I also want to make sure I answer that question with the proper detail. Um, I know I need more speed work in order to qualify. How can I safely increase speed work while maintaining the risk of injury or minimizing the risk of injury and maximizing my chance of qualifying? So I live in Chicago. I just want to make sure that besides the longer explanation, I also explain that properly. Um, so if we sprinkle in speed work, that can be done on the treadmill for sure. But I would be careful not to do too many long runs on the treadmill. Um, you've heard on the podcast frequently how I'm not really a fan of running too many miles on the on the treadmill. Um, foot placement is the same too long, too frequently. No subtle changes. Therefore, overuse injuries from landing and the load on the knee and the shin and the foot becomes too great. So something to be smart with there, but a great way to do that focus speed work, right? You come in to the treadmill, do a session there of the three, two, one fast or the six by 90 seconds fast or the four by two minutes fast or increasing the four by four minutes or eight minutes fast or however you build up that fast leg turnover speed work is great. Um, treadmill forces your legs to turn over faster, engages you into the form of higher leg turnover and speed work, and then doing most of the easy running outside, as well as um, on other platforms, whether that's even an outdoor track. Um, some of those are maintained in the winter, as well as um, running in the snow and uh, out on the pavement when it comes to being cleared or yak tracks and so forth but not too many winter miles long miles on treadmills and then as you increase that speed work you'll know how your body's responding if you need to dial back ever so gently on the speed work and do more long and medium stuff and take out the fast work or if you just do easy and fast and no medium work there's a ways to go about that so that you can observe and adjust the training that works for you um the easy stuff is going to have to happen either way, but the how much medium race pace tempo work you do and how much fast higher effort, higher leg turnover work you do is the puzzle piece that you want to observe and adjust. Can you do effective marathon training without tempo work? Yes. Can you do effective marathon training without speed work or fast work and just do tempo work? Yes. Um, but can you do it with all three, meaning easy, medium, and fast? Sure, of course. Um, so that's where you want to play around with. Always defaulting back to easy and volume with regards to you know 18 miles at, like I said, nine-minute pace or 840 pace or something like that, where you know you can do the distance at X. Now how can I do the distance at a little bit faster or closer to race pace X? So I hope that helps. 
Another email question here. I'm an avid listener to your podcast and really appreciate the amazing information you put out. Um, I'm not sure if this is the place to do this, but I know you often answer listener questions on the podcast. Um, I have one that I'm stuck on and I feel it may help others. When training in zone two, is it important to spend the entire workout there? For example, if I do a 90-minute run at zone two, would I be running ruining the benefits of the workout by finishing off with 15 minutes or so at zone three or zone four. Would doing this ruin the benefits of all the zone two work? Absolutely not, Adam. Um, so it depends on a variety of things. But in overall, your the answer to your question is no, it doesn't ruin it at all. Um, it's, a, it's a question of accumulating time in the appropriate zones. So can you mix concepts in the same workout? For sure. So um, could you do a speed work in the midst of a zone two run? For sure. Can you do a 90 minute run with like I just earlier said, six times 90 or 12 times 90 or 10 times 90 second buildups in there? Yes. Um, Can you finish off a 90 minute run with zone three or zone four work? Yes. It's a question of the accumulated time at zone two. So therefore you had 75 minutes of zone two time and what looks to be 10, 15 minutes of zone three or zone four time. So if you look at it overall for the bigger concept of the week, micro plan or the macro plan, you see that you're spending whatever amount of time at zone two, zone three, zone four, above zone four being VO2 max work for the week. Maybe it's 70% of it was zone two. Awesome. 10% at zone three. Eh, you probably want to do a bit more. 20%. So now we're at 90% zone three with you know 70 plus 20. Now we still have 10% remaining of the week. Zone four or above for sure. 10%. So if you're doing 10 hours of running a week and seven hours total are at zone two and another two hours total are at zone three. That gives you another hour at zone four or VO2 max work. That's a lot of speed work in a week. So of course you sprinkle that in throughout the week in different times and mixed into runs for sure. Um, works very well actually. So yeah, that's the answer to that question. I don't need to <laughs> belabor that point too much. All right. This question, when it came in, I was interested in answering <laughs> either way because just the subject line piqued my interest the subject line was when the three legs of the stool are non-existent <laughs> i love that hi chris love the podcast i'm writing you because i have fairly unique circumstances and i'm having trouble finding resources that mesh with my situation everything seems to be about time starved athletes with families and intense work hours trying to squeeze training in. I'm the exact opposite of that, and I actually have the time to train like a pro or as much as a body as my body can handle. Um, can feel the eye roll. <laughs> I'm 34, no wife, no kids, and have sold my online business, so only have to put in around 15 flexible hours a week on the computer and no other immediate priorities. I'm based out of Toronto, but mostly live nomadically, which allows me to travel and train wherever I happen to be. Sounds like a uh, Tim Ferriss four-hour workweek disciple. Um, 
pretty flexible. Right now, I'm in Thailand with my bike escaping the Canadian winter. I started doing triathlons four years ago and it consumed me completely. My goal is to spend the next five to, se- five to six years giving it as good of a crack as I can to see how fast I can get. See why I like this email? <laughs> it's already fun. I mean, just even reading it makes me smile how opposite, but also um, how positive it could be and fun and just hearing in Thailand with, you know, plenty of spending money and hours to train. And (laughs) anyway, I've mostly done shorter distance races until now. After completing, competing in ITU Worlds last season, I want to spend the next few years at 70.3 distance. I did 170.3 at the end of last season at Challenge Amsterdam. My time was 4.59 with a 38-minute swim. I need some time there. 2.50 bike and 129 run. Looks like you're a solid runner. I had my draft legal road bike with me because I am because I was coming from ITU World Championships in Switzerland and I also had a flat on the bike. Okay, so 2.50, got it. I think my tri-bike and the ideal with my tri bike and the ideal circumstances if that ever happens my bike split would have been in the 220 to 230 range let's just say 230 um i have a solid base because if you ride harder or um at that pace it'll it could affect your running and therefore that might have not been a 129 might have been a 134 so forth you can't do math like that um i have a solid base in running and cycling i could tell I've done around 70 to 80K a week pretty consistently over the past three years with an open half marathon time of 125 and a marathon time of 258. Done some bike touring and have no problem doing long hours on the bike. The swim is my weakest, yes, 38. Um, And I still don't feel comfortable in the water at times, although I've enjoyed improving from not making it across the pool to doing long distances over the past years. How would my time best be suited Increasing base two zone, um, increasing base zone two distance across the board. Swimming six to seven times a week. Strength training. I've toyed with ramping up the mileage. I just don't want to get injured or halt my progress in any way. I guess the question is, how does an age grouper train like a pro when who isn't a pro? Great. Well, solid question and fun to answer. So let's dive into it. Well, first. We would want to spend a good amount of time building up base and seeing what you're capable of handling. Um, when we have unlimited time to train, the, the equations and the things be- of ours become a little bit different because we first want to learn and understand our body well enough to see what kind of volume you can handle. Um, we would definitely want to still maximize the training time that we do have, even if it's unlimited. Well, relatively. Like I talked about earlier, there's only so much training we can do until the adaptations are no longer effective. But we don't want that 38 swim, 35 swim lingering over a 230 and a 130 marathon, half marathon and bike. Because you take that 230 and 130, now you have four hours. Let's say you speed up your transitions. You can quickly turn that into a 440, 435, which then just makes the training a little bit different with, again, a focus towards being the best 70.3 outcome that you want. Um, 
So then you can start balancing it out a little bit better with regards to getting that down to a 220 bike, getting that down to a 120 run, um, and keeping that swim around 30. If you're swimming around 30, that's no longer of detriment. It's more just neutral. If you're swimming uh, 25, 26, 27, now you're swimming on the front and you want to use that to your strategy. I doubt you're going to get there because that's just not something you just, even with a couple of years of swimming, you're going to push to the front of the swimmers. That being said, you want to create a swimming ability and fitness and technique and platform so that it's not of detriment of it's you're not paying for it and at 38 at 35 you're paying for it given that you want to be a professional age grouper basically um which means the front of the pack overall at the finish line but yeah you want to increase the volume on cycling and running just to see where the balance is of what you're absorbing now typically if you have unlimited time you want a second long ride a week um so you, again, 70.3 training. So a, a two, three to four hour rides a week whereby you're doing um, aerobic zone two time, um, maybe two quality rides per week. Um, let me write this down as we're, as we're sort of going on because now that's, um, so we just said two, three to fours. So that puts us at about seven hours for the week on the bike on aerobic Z2. Then, um, two uh, hour to 90 minute quality sessions, um, good intervals, power, leg turnover, speed as in cadence. Um, so that puts you at around uh, 2.5 hours um, of on the bike. Another So now we're at nine and a half. And then maybe one a ride a week where you're doing it directly proceeding in order to just get ready for the run. I call that just um, setting up a run. Um, you get on the bike. There's no necessarily purpose to the bike ride other than you want to bike before you run. Now, can you run off the three, four hour bike rides? Yes. Can you run off the quality? Yes. But the, you want a, just a neutral day where you're not taxing yourself at all on the bike and creating the best possible run. So that's a, another 90 minutes. So now we're at 10 hours on the bike just right there. Now running, similarly, we, you probably want to run a 10-miler or a 12-miler twice a week, just smooth, aerobic, long. So that's going to be, you know, 120 to 130 twice. So now we're talking 245 on running. Um, so 2.75. Then you want to do, again, uh, a, a quality run, speed work, leg turnover, track, um, 800s, 1200s, 400s type of work um, or seconds with that aspect um, twice a week. And those don't take that long. They're maybe 45 minutes. So now we're at another hour and a half. Um, so we're at 375, um, 415 now. And then that run off the bike that we talked earlier about. So take that hour and a half bike and then run, let's say, 90 minutes off that bike where you do some race pace stuff in between that zone three that tempo works so let's say you do a 90 minute bike and then get off and then 10 minutes to find your legs and then you settle into you know 
if you're a 130 runner, so you're running, let's say, maybe 645s, and then you slow to 730s, and then you repeat 645s, and sort of do that speed play in between for 90 minutes, or not the full 90 minutes, but let's say 60 or 50 minutes of those 90 minutes. So that's another hour and a half run, hour and 15 minute run. So now we're at five and a half hours right there, plus the 10 and a half, plus the 10-ish hours. So now we're about 16 hours just right there, bike and run. I mean, and that's pretty, um, nothing that crazy for an elite age grouper. So now we're 16 hours. Now you want to swim three to four times a week, three times a week for fitness, um, anywhere from an up, a minimum of an hour, 3000 yards, meters, whatever. Um, but you know, closer to 4,000. Um, three to 4,000. Again, I say that and I do that with my athletes because I want them to have more control in their swimming to then have more effective swims. So you might say, well, my swim is only 1.2 miles, which is 2,200 yards. Why am I swimming three to 4,000? Well, it'll make that 22 way more powerful, way more, um, you can change speeds and you're in more control and you can accelerate or decelerate and accelerate back up again if your fitness level is for almost twice that, but a good thousand yards beyond that. If you need to speed up, get around a pack, um, you, something happened in the swim and you need to swim faster for 20 minutes, you can do that when you have this type of fitness. But then the fourth swim should be technique driven. You're not looking for fitness, you're not looking for pace, you're not looking for anything like that, but you're swimming mainly drills, feel for the water, gliding, just really paying attention to what's happening in the water for you as athlete, as triathlete, to really then apply what you're feeling with no stress of pace or a workout to then do the other three swims better, more aware better feel for the water as you do that weekly and uh, frequently. So that's four hours right there of swimming. So now we're at 20. Now we're at 20 hours for the week. Now we have yet to do strength. We have yet to do any type of stretching or yoga or core work, right? So let's say another session or two of strength or yoga or core or body weight strength or um, um, TRX or Pilates, whatever that is. So now you're at 22 hours, <laughs> right? So you can see quickly here how the hours ramp up quite nicely. So I've run around 70 to 80K a week. Let's say that's, um, you know, that's uh, 50 miles. You know, that I, that might have to pull back a little bit since you don't need that, um, that much mon running. And I doubt those uh, five and a half hours will net you 70 to 80k a week but maybe close because of the paces that you're running so that's how i would um, start structuring it from there you can then adjust accordingly what you're absorbing what not where you're feeling the drop off so despite the cycling volume i'm still able to run x the way i want to therefore can i up the cycling because remember in 70.3 and ironman anything more than a 70.3 Cycling fitness is the most important component to a successful race because, again, it's the longest component. It takes the longest of the four and a half, five hours that you're racing, 
and it sets you up for the best possible run because the fitness on the bike allows you to run to your potential. And to bring this whole thing back that you're not time starved, therefore you can work on the most time consuming aspect of triathlon, which is cycling. The one that takes the longest to build up the fitness for is running because it's off the bike and we're time starved on the bike. Therefore, it takes longer to get the bike fitness. Therefore, it takes us longer to have the proper run fist off the bike. But you can spend time on the bike. So that's your main component, overarching theme. I want to be able to be as fit as possible on the bike to have the run I'm capable of based off the training. You don't need to train more than five six hours on running you can even pull that back four and a half to five hours because that will not be compromised as much and needed as much if your cycling fitness let's say can get you and because first you have to show that you can do this 220 230 it it might look like that on a bad road bike um, which was obviously not a tt bike and a flat but maybe if you ride it steady you get fatigued differently again I don't know, but let's, you should focus first, as I've talked about in the past on the podcast, 230-130. You're doing 230-130 in a 70.3. You're set up very well for um, a, a really launching to the front of the age group. Um, then you can work on 220-120, but for now, the goal should be 230-130. How do you do that? Get the bike fitness up over fitness over prepare for the bike so that the bike really takes less and less out of you and you have the ability to then fly on that run so that the 230 costs you very little and you can maybe run a 125 right um well and i think though that 125 is not uh indicative of what you're capable of truly running a half marathon because you've run a 129 in a 70.3 you can run faster than a 125 so that's how I would look at it. And that answers, I hope, your question. So overarching with the cycling um, and then with a heavy focus on improving the swimming, not doing too much with the running and working on those ingredients first. And I think 22 hours, 20 to 22 hours is a good place to start if you have unlimited time. That's a sick week. Now you can't do that every week. You can't just repeat that. So let's say you go 18 to 20, then 20 to 22, and then a recovery week. But based off your training history, you also have to build up to 20 to 22. So don't just jump right into it, right? Um, You got to sort of first tolerate 14 to 16. Maybe you already are. So then tolerate 16 to 18. Maybe you already are. Tolerate 20, right? And so that... Do you need more than 20 to 22 hours a week of training for a 70.3? Very much unlikely, really not needed. Um, now, it's all the other components around that that turn it into a professional. The massage, the diet, the nutrition work, right? Um, the sleep, the body care, the post and pre-care in order to have the best type of training, the type of nutrients you're taking in the type of hydration you're taking in to have the training effect for that given workout and then what you're doing differently on easy workouts and how you time that during the week and how you time your training cycles and how you time your periodization that all then becomes the next level from this 
But that's sort of the balance that I would first look at and, and work around so that then you feel pretty good about um, tolerating that type of volume. So I think that answers it all. Alrighty then, I hope you guys enjoyed this week's episode 122. Went through a variety of topics there. I'm just listing it out because I send a sort of a summary to uh, the guy, my friend Mike, who uploads the podcast for me. And um, there's a lot of random <laughs> cross-the-board topics on this week's Weekly Word podcast. But quite honestly, that's exactly what it, it should be. It's questions it's insights. It's the best I can do to give as much information to you so that when you train, that when you compete, then when you're thinking about this, when you're going about this endeavor, this journey, this adventure of training and ultra endurance, that you somewhat have a roadmap, that you have some sort of guide. What I think is um, really meaningful to me lately is I get a lot of emails where people have been saying, you know, having you in my ear and listening to the podcast, I built my own training plan and I achieved X or I did my first Ironman or I did my first 50K or 50 miler or the concepts you talked about helped me get through this race or I improved by that. And that's all this is. I mean, as you guys heard on the quality of my recording, <laughs> It's so pathetic. Um, throughout this podcast, you know, loud, soft, off mic, on mic, people walking into my office, people walking out. Um, I'm barely hanging on <laughs> with this software, um, and I will work on improving it. I have a quieter week next week uh, where I'm going to catch up on a bunch of work, and uh, we have our computers back and working on getting everything back to normal uh, equilibrium. And of course you say that and it's the holidays and next week's not going to be calm at all. Something will come up with four kids and craziness and mayhem and three dogs. And, you know, our household is always busy. But that being said, um, I hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. I hope you continue to give me um, topics and questions and insights that I can talk about or things that you're curious about because that's all this is. I just want to contribute and help and guide and do the best I can to share what I know. I don't have a lot of areas of expertise, but I'd like to say that ultra endurance, um, I am an expert in, and I've coached for 25 years now in this realm, in this space, maybe not always ultra endurance, but coaching in these disciplines and always going along. I was always interested in going along, even when I was a swimmer, and then obviously when I was a triathlete and ultra runner. But that's my expertise. And as much as I can transfer that, uh, help um, get that out of me to others, that's all this is. And having 122 episodes to know that is out there forever of sharing this and using it as some sort of guide stick to take part in this. That makes me feel very, very fulfilled. So thank you. Thank you all for letting me do this. And the reason you are letting me doing the, do this is because you are actually listening. You're giving me feedback. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of you listening, more than I ever thought I would have listening when I started this. So thank you. Thank you. That's sort of my Thanksgiving appreciation as well, since I never did a Thanksgiving podcast that week. And um, yeah, I'm going to 
do my best to not only get Emily on the podcast. She was laughing when I told her that I said we deferred it. Um, and we get that nutrition podcast, that interview, that back and forth going. Because I think you guys will really enjoy the dynamic of how Emily and I discuss this stuff. And um, also pull a lot of value out of that. And then we'll continue going on topics. Um, I have a sunny update. He's healthy again. He's running. So I'm going to try to get him on a call with an update next week. Um, I know it's not as smooth with the training plan as the 50K was. So I still need to follow through on that. Upcoming, I want to do a 70.3 training plan. And I get a lot of emails and a lot of people have been asking me about a swim clinic. And swimming seems to be the thing that people want the most. So I would love to hear from all of you, besides my athletes, I hear from you already with regards to the swim clinic, but I would love to hear from all of you what you would recommend I do. Um, I can do it here um, in Northern California and rent a pool and, and spend, you know, a weekend, but will we have enough people? Will you fly in? Will people drive in in order to do that? I, I want to keep this stuff as cheap and as simple as possible. I am not looking to make money on it. I want to give the swim clinic. And so from that, I would love to get some suggestions. This is where my coaching and my business realm is very limited because you know, I do what I do, but trying to be creative on more ideas and inputs on how to make this work better so that I could put forth a platform that can help many of you. I mean, let's say 10 of you come. That's all I would need um, to just spend a really in-depth, um, specific, um, valuable weekend of really helping you with your swimming. Because again, I'm confident that I'm an expert in that and also helping you learn it and feel it and um, swim so that you can take it back home to you effectively and then from there um, apply it for three, four, five, six months and then hopefully we do another clinic or something like that. So that's the purpose of what I want to do with the swim camp or swim, not swim clinic, not swim camp, because camp is usually longer, many days. And a clinic is two, three days that we get the best value out of that. Maybe an afternoon, a full day and another morning, right? That's doable on a weekend, Friday afternoon, Saturday, all day, Sunday morning, people can depart from there. So if I could ask the community for help, this is one of those times that I would love to get feedback and input on what you would think would be. The, would would you travel in? Would you come and join a swim clinic? And I would do it cost, right? What I do for renting the pool and a few other expenses, divide that up by the 10 people and um, a little bit of my time, but nothing crazy. And then, yeah, doing that. So it's not a lot of money. It's like 100 bucks or 200 bucks a person. So, um well, it depends on how many people. If all of a sudden we have a lot of people, then we have to change those numbers a bit because then I need more pool space, pool lanes, and rental, and so forth. So anyway, cut that short. Let's get out of here. Have a great week. I can't wait to do episode 123. All right, thank you.